You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. Aha, here you are, he exclaimed, looking at Jean Valjean. I'm glad to see you. Well, but how is this? I gave you the candlesticks too, which are of silver like the rest, and of which you can certainly get 200 francs. Why did you not carry them away with the forks and the spoons? Jean Valjean opened his eyes wide and stared at the venerable bishop with the expression which no human tongue could render any account of. Monsieur, said the brigadier of jet arms, so what this man said is true then? We came across him. He was walking like a man who was running away. We stopped him to look into the matter. We saw this silver, oh, and he told you, interrupted the bishop with a smile, that it had been given to him by a kind old fellow of a priest with whom he had passed the night. I see how the matter stands as you have brought him back here. It is a mistake. In that case, replied the brigadier, we can let him go? Certainly, replied the bishop. Germans released Jean Vagin and who recoiled. Is it true? that I am to be released? He said in an almost inarticulate voice as though he were talking in his sleep. Yes, you are released. Do you not understand? Said one of the soldiers. My friend, resumed the bishop, before you go, here are your candlesticks, take them. Jean Valjean was trembling in every limb. He took two candlesticks mechanically and with a bewildered air. Now, said the bishop, go in peace. By the way, when you return, my friend, it is not necessary to pass through the garden. You can always enter and depart through the street door. It is never fastened with anything but a latch, either by day or by night. The bishop drew near to him and said in a low voice, Jean Valjean, my brother, You no longer belong to evil, but to good. It is your soul that I buy from you. I withdraw it from the black thoughts and the spirit of perdition, and I give it to God. Perhaps some of you recognize these words. For those of you who do not, these are the opening words of Les Miserables, a novel by Victor Hugo, published in 1862. While the book touches on many different topics, women's suffrage, the ability to vote, politics in France and the revival and the issues of uprising there against the king, the main storyline of that novel is one of redemption. Redemption. Inspector Havert, a former prison guard of Jean Valjean, cannot accept the fact that Valjean has been 
reformed. He knew him as a prison guard. For 19 years, Jean Valjean served time in prison for stealing bread because he was starving. And this prison guard cannot imagine him to be anything other than what he saw him to be, a criminal. And he believed that the law must condemn at all times in order for it to be the law. He had no category for an understanding of grace. Grace that forgives. Grace that pardons. Grace that releases one of a debt. Grace that recasts one as once a rebel and now, in this case, a leader, a city. Well, this morning we return to the life and the ministry of the prophet Jonah. If you have a copy of the Bible, let me ask you to turn your Bibles to the book of Jonah, Jonah chapter 3. If you're just joining us for the first time this morning, we have been for the last couple of weeks in the minor prophet Jonah, working our way through this captivating and gripping story of seemingly a servant of Yahweh, a representative of God and his people to the nations, and yet what we find in him is nothing what we would expect. First Kings describes a prophet that had a successful ministry, but the time here now in Jonah, as this book recounts, is a rebellious time, as we've seen these last several weeks together. And what we're seeing here is this increasing tension that grace creates in the hearts of those who only know and live by the law. I mean, we all want justice, right? We all believe in truth, right? We all believe in a sense of vindication to make wrongs right, right? Well, then where is the place for grace? If you're familiar with the book Les Miserables, it is as if Inspector Havert is playing, played by Jonah, and he's being asked to go and preach the law and the grace of God to undeserving sinners. And Jonah in chapter 1 rebels until he submits in Jonah chapter 2. He rebels until he relents. And it takes us now to Jonah chapter 3, which really is captured by three different parties. We're going to work our way through this together this morning. The first truth we wanted, the first lesson we wanted to learn here is when truth compels you. Now, look with me, Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. When truth compels you. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. We'll stop here for now. First lesson we can learn here is when truth compels you. Now we pick right back up in Jonah chapter 3, verse 1, where we left off in Jonah chapter 1. Go back to Jonah chapter 1 and look at the striking similarity of 
verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1 and verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3. Let's go back to Jonah chapter 1. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for the evil has come up before me. Back to chapter 3, one more time, verse 1, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. What you're seeing here are these five overlapping, matching similarities of Jonah's calling and commissioning. He's called as a prophet, and he's commissioned to preach God's word as a prophet. And that's exactly what he's returning back to. Jonah relents from his rebelliousness and submits to God's calling upon his life, which then takes us to then verse 3. Look at what it says in verse 3. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. Now, just to give you a sense of perspective on this, Jonah, if you go back to Jonah chapter 1, look at what it says there in Verse 2, excuse me, verse 3, it says, Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. And then you get into chapter 2 with the whole episode of the fish. And then eventually he's vomited out. We don't know exactly where Jonah is geographically, but he is at least as far away as Joppa. And he's got to get to Nineveh. Now, why do I say this? Because from Joppa to Nineveh is 550 miles. The average caravan at that time would travel about 20 to 25 miles a day. So I want you to understand something. The end of chapter 2 to the beginning of chapter 3, when Jonah's now going to be called again to this responsibility to preach, he now has got to get there, and it takes him a month to get there. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes if you're like me, if you get a quiet time alone where you get a chance to think and reflect, perhaps going for a run, perhaps going for a walk, that time can be time that you and the Lord have. You just kind of begin to think through your day, think through relationships, maybe have some time in prayer. Imagine the Lord saying, I'd like a month with you. I've had three days with you in the fish. Now I'd like a month with you. Jonah is now going to go to where he was called to go and to do what he was called to do and to preach what he was called to preach. Look at what it says there in verse 4. Jonah preaches and proclaims. Look at what it says. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, just to get understanding, he's talking about, as, as this record is accounting here, that Nineveh depending on the translation of the Hebrew, is either saying it takes three days to get around the city it's so big, three days to get through the entire city it's so big, or it's more of a euphemistic phrase of saying this city is gigantic. Because we know that in chapter 3, or verse 3, there's this reference to the size of Nineveh. Contrast that to verse 4. Look at what it says in verse 4, because it now gives us reference to how far he travels. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey. Like, what is this? Well, different commentators have said different things about this. As far as it's indicative of the fact he didn't want to go to the entire city, he went far enough to get the message out. It's a bit of speculation, but what's not speculation is what he says. 
he says what we have in our English Bibles, eight words. What's more remarkable is that in our Hebrew Bibles, if we're reading Hebrew, which this is a translation from, is merely five words. You could say this is one of the shortest sermons ever recorded in human history. I mean, he's been waiting how long to go how far to stay away from saying how many words? But as we'll later learn in the coming weeks in Jonah chapter 4, because Jonah has a suspicion of where this preaching is going. But look at what he says. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. This term overthrown means destroyed from the very foundation. It's a, a word, interestingly, that was the same word applied to Sodom and Gomorrah. It's this word of reference, of complete destruction. You're thinking, well, Jonah hates them so badly, you'd think he would be like, I'd gladly sign up for that. I'd gladly be a messenger of bad news against my enemies. I can't wait to tell them God's going to judge them. But as I said, we'll later learn in Jonah chapter 4, Jonah suspects there's more to the message than meets the eye. As we're going to see this morning, it's certainly true. Now, just already in this first part of our chapter 3, when truth compels you, in verses 1 to 4, I want to stop before we go any further and make two reflections. First reflection, God's grace is needed for the religious and the ungodly. God's grace is needed for the religious and the ungodly. Now, why do I say that? Well, go back to verse 1, if you would. When the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Friends, don't let this pass you by. There is a significant reference to what's being highlighted here in the word of God. God is not done with Jonah. He could be. He'd certainly be right to be. He'd be in his prerogative to say, you know what? I'll find somebody else who wants to serve me. You don't want the job? Fine. I'm done with you. It's not what happens here. God is not a God who's obligated to give second chances. I mean, you don't believe me? Just ask the prophet in 1 Kings 13 who is mauled by a lion. Or Uzzah, and who's killed by touching the ark. And yet, God in his grace gives Jonah a second chance. I think what's so remarkable here is to see just the significance that's not just the Ninevites who need grace. It's Jonah who needs grace. And this is why I say the reflection here is that God's grace is needed for the religious and the ungodly. We can look at somebody who's sort of down and out, somebody who is seemingly immoral and immodest, somebody seemingly a trash talker and a, an unethical liver, and say, you know what, they, they probably need some grace. Their friends, you also know who needs grace? The self-righteous older brother. The runaway prophet who's had a history of doing good deeds, God gives him a second chance. 
It's also worth noting here that we can sometimes pervert God's grace to mean that he has suspended his wrath. We can wrongly think of God as a parent who asks us to do something. He says he's serious. He will count to three, and then when we don't obey, he'll start counting to three. That's not what's to be understood here in the text. God's grace towards Jonah is continuing to call him towards obedience. It's also interesting to note here, God's grace does not mean getting out of what you find uncomfortable or undesirable. God, I just want you to know what you're asking me to do is really hard for me. Oh, I'm sorry. Is that hard for you? Okay. Let's find something you're comfortable with. Right? That's often how we assess God's calling on our life is where we feel comfortable. Because kind of in a therapeutic self-help kind of mindset of today, God wouldn't want me to be uncomfortable He wouldn't want me to feel unloved. He wouldn't want me to feel not valued. So I can know God's call for me by wherever he sends me is where I feel most comfortable with. Friends, Jonah is like raising his hand saying, may I have a word with the rest of you? That's often not how God works in our life. God's grace is not just in giving second chances. God's grace is in also giving a second chances to return to the thing that we're still uncomfortable doing that we do not desire to do. It means getting another opportunity to trust God and obey him. Another reflection here from verses one to four, it should not be missed because it's different in verse two of chapter three than it is in verse two of chapter one. And it's this, preachers are to preach God's word, not their own. Go back to verse two. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. Look at the next few words. The message that I tell you. Again, friends, do not let this pass you by. This is a significant lesson for Jonah and for all the readers of God's word even today. God has given his word to his people, often raising up within his people, messengers to preach that word, but it is only that word that is to be preached. The the tragedy today is that too often we have preachers and teachers, as Paul even warned Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, that a time will come when people will surround themselves with teachers that will do what? Tickle their ears. Tell them things that they want to hear. Instead, telling them the things that they need to hear. We need more preachers and teachers like this today. Too many preachers get away with mystical justification of preaching something other than God's word. You'll sometime hear it be said, I feel like the Lord wants me to say to you, which you would be right to say to the preacher, can we get past your feelings and get back to what has been revealed and tell us what God's word actually says. Too often we're left to subjective impressions and therapeutic inclinations and bypassing sometimes, whereas we see here in the words of Jonah, are hard words to preach. Friend, let me just tell you something. If you find yourself around the people of God, but never hearing the word of God completely. 
where you're told honestly and lovingly, humbly and gently, the truth about your condition and the only hope that you have in Christ, that truth of your condition being a sinner, a rebel against a holy God, and that sin is not just missing the mark. If you don't succeed, try and try again. But sin is an act of holy treason against a holy God trying to dethrone him from his throne where he would rightly judge you because of that treasonous act and yet because of his mercy sends his son to be a substitute and the hope of forgiveness, not just by believing in some generic sense, but as an act of repenting and surrendering. Friends, do me a favor. Walk out the door and don't go back. You want people who will preach God's word. Takes us now to verses 5 through 9. We first of all learn when truth compels you. Now secondly... When repentance shocks you. When repentance shocks you. We move from talking about Jonah to now talking about the Ninevites. Look at verse 5 and then verses 6 through 9. And just so you get an orientation, verse 5 is like a summary verse. And then verses 6 through 9 gives the details of what happened. How did, how did, we, how did it get there? Verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them cast out, call out, excuse me, mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Friends, we have gone in chapter 2 from the great sea to now in chapter 3, the great city. And the lessons are no less remarkably just compoundingly coming after us one after the other after the other. What is so shocking here is that the people repent. Now let's just again find our bearings with the Assyrians. Nineveh is the capital city to the land of Assyria. The Assyrians were the mighty power that ruled the world at that time, the known world at that time, for over 1,700 years. 1,700 years. Just one again by comparison. The United States of America would have to be in its current state until the year 3,425 to be comparable to Assyria. Their capital city, Nineveh, is like our capital city, Washington, D.C. But the Assyrians are wicked people. Wicked people. These are the people that you do not want to hear are coming for your village, coming for your town, 
coming for your country. Because when they come, they will seek to overwhelmingly destroy and submit you. Destroy as much of you as they can and submit the rest of you to the rule and make you slaves. And then they're going to take your land and give it away to other people that they're going to have brought into your land. They're going to do this time after time after time again. And we think about monuments, statues, ivory towers of, of, of accomplishment. Their form of that was to take the leaders of a town, cut off all their heads, stack their heads into a pyramid, and create that at the center of the town, at the entrance of the town, so that when you came into the town, you say, this town has been defeated by the Assyrians. And their king is in charge of all of it. A wicked, wicked, wicked man leading a wicked, wicked, wicked people. And a prophet who they've never heard of from a land that most of them have never been to, though they've heard of, shows up and tells them about a God who is going to judge all of them in 40 days. Now, if you think preaching is foolish and evangelism is a wasted exercise, you would not be the first person to think that. Jonah's like, take it from me. I cannot imagine a more fruitless exercise. I'm going to go to the most wicked people on the planet. I'm going to tell them, God's going to judge them, and I'm expecting to get out alive? Or are they even going to listen to me? Of course they know what they're doing is horrible. This is why they do it, to strike fear into all the surrounding nations, to just submit to them before I even be conquered by them. And what's so shocking is, verse 6, the king goes from a throne to a pile of ashes. That's what he does. His leadership is moved from a power seat to a repentant sackcloth. And he leads his people into the exact same exercise themselves. And it's nationwide over all, even the animals. It's remarkable to see. And no offer of forgiveness, seemingly. And yet God amazingly worked in Nineveh. These people turned to him. They repented. And because of that, God spared them. Now, here's what's so remarkable. Track with me here. Fast forward ahead. 800 years later, Jesus of Nazareth shows up. Jewish rabbi. And in Matthew chapter 12, verse 41, Jesus says the following, The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. Jesus is saying that there is one greater than Jonah, as we talked about last week, that's here, and it's himself preaching the message of repentance. Now, here's what's so remarkable. 
Jonah did not know, as what Peter would later say, did not know clearly what would be known clearly in Christ, which is the hope of forgiveness through faith in Christ. Friends, this is remarkable to every person sitting here today, especially to those of you who have not yet surrendered your life to Christ. Because on a couple of perspectives here to recognize, number one, there is nothing, there is absolutely nothing you could do that Ninevites are like, oh yeah, I did that too. Like I'm telling you, Eric, I have done some crazy stuff. You would be surprised if you knew the amount of drugs I put on my body. Ninevites got you. You'd be surprised if you knew the acts of immorality I've done. Ninevites got you. You'd be surprised if you knew some of the crimes I've committed. Ninevites got you. There is no human act you could imagine that you have done that you might think, therefore, God could not forgive me. Ninevites are like, oh, we'd like to have a word. We'd like to tell you about something. But here's what Jesus wants us to understand. The message is not to ultimately believe in what Jonah said. It's to believe in what Jesus said, which is that there is hope to be forgiven of your sins through faith in Christ. Jesus would say himself later in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This isn't some generic feel-bad moment like a New Year's resolution comes early here in Miami. This is an opportunity to recognize the reality of what God has put before the people in his Son. Come to Christ and find rescue, find redemption, find grace. What you see here in the text says how they sat with sackcloth and sat in ashes. What's a remarkable thing here is to recognize what you're reading is on record the single greatest event in all of human history of people responding to the preaching of the Word of God. The estimates of the population of Nineveh are ranging from several hundred thousand to a million plus. And the entire city repents. I mean, you maybe have heard about famous preachers in our lifetime, people like a Billy Graham. Maybe prior to our lifetime, like one of my favorite pre- people in all of uh, church history is George Whitfield. The greatest preacher was the most reluctant, rebellious one there was. Which is a remarkable lesson to say God doesn't need a zealous preacher to accomplish his purposes and his, and his plans in people's lives. He wants the word to get out and let it do its work in people's lives. A five-word Hebrew word sermon accomplishes the single greatest act of repentance in human history. Some of you are like, if only you preach a five-word sermon, we might repent too. I heard that thought. Look at the signs of true revival. Look at what happens here in the text, verses 6 to 8. There's repentance. There's humility in how they posture themselves. There's this appeal to others, the people of Nineveh, Nineveh rather, 
wanting everybody to do this, the acknowledging of the appropriate justice. Notice the similarities to Joel chapter 2, a text we have for you on the screen. Joel chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. Listen to what Joel says. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your, your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants, let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber between the vestibule and the altar. Let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, spare your people, O Lord, make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? In verses five through nine, some more reflections for us to not miss. First of all, responding to preaching, right? The message of the Lord in verse 2 is responding to the Lord. Responding to preaching is responding to the Lord. Look at what it says in verse 5. I, I, I love what it says here. And so verse 2, according to the word of the Lord, and then verse 5, the people of Nineveh believed who? Who? God. I know you're not used to that. The people of Nineveh believed who? But who was the one preaching? Jonah. Because Jonah was preaching God's word, they knew it was coming from God. The authority of the sermon was not in the preacher, it was in the source of the sermon from the Lord. And it says in verse 5, they believed God. They believed God. If Jonah was talking and yet they believe God. Let me ask you a question this morning. Who's talking now? Eric or the Lord? How do you orient your heart to the preaching and teaching of God's word? Is it an exercise of public oratory display? Listening to another person? Or is it with a posture of humility to say, I want to hear from the Lord. Show me in God's word where it says this. Teach me what it means. Help me to understand how to apply it, where I need to change my thinking, where I need to change my living, how I need to honor and love Christ. Another reflection for us is to do the right thing, even if you're not sure it'll change your circumstance. Do the right thing, even if you're not sure it'll change your circumstance. Go back to verse 8. Middle of verse 8, it says, Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. This is the king of Nineveh speaking here. Verse 9, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Let's be very clear. The Ninevites are repenting regardless of whether or not God turns. 
they know what they deserve. And they're responding accordingly. I think what's captivating here is to watch how a rebellious, wicked, historically violent, unjust ruler can sometimes better understand lessons about our God than we can. The temptation for you and I is to barter with God. God, if I, will you? If I, if I promise to read my Bible, if I promise to serve in my church, if I promise to love my neighbor, will you, by the new year, get me a boyfriend or a girlfriend? If I promise to be faithful to the finances you've given me, would you promise to give us as a couple a new child? God, if I, if I promise to be faithful at my workplace and to live as a Christian and not give in to their sense of humor and to really try to have my Bible maybe on my desk and maybe talk about Jesus, would you, Lord, help me with that promotion and maybe some recognition of my hard work? Friends, this is an opportunity to recognize God calls us to do the right thing whether or not we know what's going to come from doing the right thing. That's a humbling reminder that we could all learn from. It takes us thirdly to the remaining part of the text. We've learned when truth compels you. Secondly, when repentance shocks you. And now third, when forgiveness amazes you. When forgiveness amazes you. Look at verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This past week, we had a Thanksgiving holiday, national holiday. A number of you I trust, if not most, if not maybe even all of you, on Thanksgiving Day, celebrated in some type of way. Uh, we were able to have a family gathering, my wife's family being from Miami, it's a ton of people. And I uh, just have to say, my wife is my favorite cook, uh, hands down. I don't mean that to offend any ladies here, I just want you to know, bless your heart. She wins. Thanksgiving is my favorite meal. My boys and I were talking about this too. I mean, the turkey is just done perfect. It's bacon wrapped. Anything bacon wrapped is just like next level. It's like, it's great. It's super great. And the mashed potatoes, I mean, it's like they're angelic. I'm just telling you, the recipe came from heaven. My wife made those too. But, and this week I was reading, thinking about Thanksgiving, and came across one article that talked about the most famous, not famous, the most expensive Thanksgiving meal in America this year. It's served at a place in New York City titled the Old Homestead Steakhouse. It costs $150,000. Feeds 12 of you, though. That's a pretty good deal. Some things it includes. Free-range, organically raised turkey. We wouldn't have it any other way, right? It costs $135 a pound. $475 a pound pork from Japan. A $2,500 a pound white truffle. Gravy that is infused with special reserve Pappy Van Winkle bourbon 
priced at $3,300 a bottle. Never tasted that before. Butternut squash topped with $1,600 an ounce Caspian Sea caviar and many other exotic items and ingredients. But the biggest part of the meal, and hence why it costs the way it's cost, is because of what's placed into the stuffing. What's placed into the stuffing actually, bizarrely if you ask me, are the keys to a 2018 Maserati Levant. Considered to be the Mona Lisa on wheels. So I've been told. Now you probably think, <laughs> okay, that's a little bit over the top. I mean, just go over to Eric's house and have the best thing. You're going to pay $150,000 for it. That's, that's extra. That's a bit sensational. That's a bit carried away. Friends, when you read Jonah chapter 3, verse 10, does it have the same response? Or have you come to become so used to and assuming so much on the grace of God that it doesn't hit you the same way? Again, verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Friends, this is extravagant, immeasurable grace that God gives. Now, some would say, according to verse 10, God relenting of a disaster is like a theological problem. Did God change his mind? I mean, after all, Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 and 10 says, I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. So the question is, when we read this, did God go like, oh man, I was going to do this, now you're doing this, okay, I'll go over here. Oh, you're doing this? Oh, you're, okay, I'm going to go over here. And is God like in heaven like, okay, what's happening? What are you going to do? Okay, that's what I'm going to do. What are you going to do? That's what I'm going to do. And poor God, he's like always caught off guard of what we're going to do. But then he comes up with a good plan. We're like, so thank you, God, that you came up with that plan. That didn't look good for us. That's not at all what's happening in the Bible throughout human history. It's about the use of terms. So if I say to you the term, God is good, and I say to you the term, Eric is good, I've got different people I'm talking about, but I'm using the same descriptions, is good. Do I mean the same thing? Yes or no? No. I'm giving an analogous comparison of things that are familiar and known to help connect what maybe it would be otherwise unknown. If you're going on a road trip, 12-passenger van. You're in the very back of the van. Up front is the driver. You know you're headed to Orlando. Disney World is waiting. And all of a sudden, unbeknownst to you, surprising to you, the driver takes a left turn. Left is not towards Orlando. Left is towards Naples. You're thinking the driver has changed their mind. The driver doesn't want to go to Orlando. Or maybe the driver wants to go to Orlando, but the driver is lost, and now we're going the wrong direction. I need to help the driver out. But you're 12, row, you're 12 seats back. You have no clue what's going on with the driver. The driver's having a conversation perhaps with the co-pilot, if you will. 
and they know something that you don't know. And they're still headed to Orlando. Friends, God works mysteriously, but profoundly as a display of both his commitment to his justice and his grace. And he shows his love even for the most rebellious of sinners, for those who will turn. So the question is today, who here today, under the preaching of the word of God today, needs to turn? To give their life to Christ. And I don't just mean those of you who are not Christians. Because Jonah also needed to turn. He needed to turn back from his self-righteous rejection of God's will for his life. And turn back to following God even when it was hard and uncomfortable. The safest place to be, not by circumstance, but by having peace with God is in the will of God, no matter how difficult of a place that that takes you to. For some of you, that difficult place is leaving the world behind and giving your life to Christ by repenting of your sins and putting your faith in Christ. For others of you, it's leaving aside your self-righteousness and your judgmentalism and you're selecting the Bible when you want to obey it and when you don't want to obey it and surrendering yourself back to the Lord completely. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.